listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And for today's episode, we are going to be discussing Black Sabbath's third album, Master of Reality. Master of Reality was released on July 21st, 1971 on the Vertigo label. It was recorded at Island Studios in London from February to April 1971. Produced by Roger Bain, it went all the way to number five on the UK album charts and number eight on the US album charts and has been certified double platinum. It features eight songs clocking in at 34 minutes and 29 seconds. Sweet Leaf, After Forever, Embryo, Children of the Grave, Orchid, Lord of This World, Solitude, and Into the Void. All songs were written by Black Sabbath, except After Forever, Embryo, and Orchid, which were written by Tony Iommi. The Master of Reality tour began on July 1st, 1971 at the St. Paul Civic Arena and ended on April 9th, 1972 at the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey. A typical set list on this tour was NIB, War Pigs, Sweet Leaf, Black Sabbath, Iron Man, Embryo, Children of the Grave, Wicked World, Paranoid, and Fairies Wear Boots. All right, so Darren, what were your first impressions? Where were you when you first heard Black Sabbath's massive third album, Master of Reality? Well, uh, it was one of the albums that I I just bought. I, I had no uh order that i bought these albums i started out with never say i was all over the place started out with never say die um one after that was paranoid that was the album that made me a fan i mean it's been so long now but i I think this was probably like the fourth black sabbath album that i got um and i was i was really impressed with it when, when i got it i mean it's really straightforward very heavy you know, in a lot of ways, it is the quintessential Black Sabbath record. You know, we have some popular songs. We got Sweet Leaf, Children of the Grave, Into the Void. I mean, the album is just, it's solid from start to finish. The production is very dry, but it's a real heavy record. Um, it's a great Black Sabbath record. And I mean, so the first three albums, I mean, undeniably are, are great. Um, after that, I guess it's more of a subjective call as to which one is the best. Um, my personal pick for the best would be Paranoid. Um, but a lot of people pick Master of Reality, and uh, I can see why. But my initial thought was that it was just a very solid album. I was really, I was really happy with it. And I was really excited about Black Sabbath. Up to that point, and... After I got Master of Reality and listened to it, I got even more excited. I, I was ready to keep going. Black mm-hmm. Sabbath was, and Ozzy and Black Sabbath, that, that, was, that was my favorite band. And I was really excited about 
about Black Sabbath music at that time. So yeah, it's, it's it's funny for me. I had Paranoid was my first Sabbath album, and then I got the first album. And for whatever reason, I distinctly remember this. My local record store at the mall did not have Master of Reality. So I went from Paranoid to Black Sabbath and then jumped to, I bought volume four, I bought Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, and then I got Master of Reality. And at that point I had heard Children of the Grave and Sweet Leaf, I think that was it, you know, on like college rock radio or classic rock radio. So when I heard it, it was interesting because it would, I always sort of associate the first three albums together and then I associate the next three together and then the yeah. last two. It always kind of feels to me uh, that. like that. So Master of Reality felt like a little bit of a continuation from Paranoid. It, it's, uh, but it, the first thing that hit me was is the sort of uh, sludgy, dark nature of the album. Not that Paranoid is a bright album or anything like that. No, but it's, it is brighter in comparison. And I guess, and you and I both know because we've referenced this before, but this is the first album where Iomi and, and Geezer tuned down. Correct. Um, a common misconception that you've heard me, people have heard me talk about before on this podcast that everybody, it's one of these folklore things that Tony Iommi chopped off his fingertips in the accident, thus he tuned his guitar down. But in reality, the first album he did that on was, was Master of Reality. So that probably added to the sort of sludginess of it. And even just the opening song, Sweet Leaf, like that guitar riff is just very like, Mm -hmm. droney and sludgy and children of the grave is like that and i remember being uh this would have been the first sabbath album well no i would have heard the acoustic stuff on volume four and sabbath bloody sabbath but the contrast between the sludgy stuff and orchid and uh even embryo the little instrumental thing uh yeah, I just remember it feeling dark, kind of real, real dark and, and heavy, a very heavy sounding record. And that was my initial uh, impressions of it. In fact, the, the album cover sort of sets the tone for me. It's a little bit of a trippy, you know, the name is sort of a wavy name thing. It was sort of trippy and and for some reason, I, I remember I couldn't find this. Uh, I bought cassettes back then. And so I had the other stuff on cassette. And uh, this one, they did not have it on cassette. They only had it on record. So I bought it on record. And it had the lyrics on the back, which was something that I thought was immensely cool. And uh, so yeah, it was interesting for me because I sort of got everything else roughly in order, but then I sort of backtracked for this one and it was sort of the missing piece in the puzzle between Paranoid and Volume 4. Paranoid, from Paranoid to Volume 4 to my ears seemed like a, like a big change, but then when I got Master of Reality, I was like, okay, here's sort of that missing link between those, those two albums. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. I, I would think that there'd be a real big, uh, real big gap between Paranoid and Volume Four. But I think Master of Reality really bumps up 
against volume four. I think volume four carries some of the vibe that Master of Reality has, but goes a little bit further, and especially in, in terms of the tonality of some of the songs. I mean, Master of Reality sounds like a heavier album. I think Paranoid isn't, isn't light, but it is a little brighter in the mastering. I, I guess that's what I would attribute it to. Um, Master of Reality is, has a darker, it's more dense, um, less bright. And I think that when Volume 4 comes after that, it, Master of Reality just goes right up to it, and then Volume 4 takes over after that. So going from Paranoid to Volume 4 would be kind of like, wow, what's going on here? But this is definitely an album that would bridge the gap between those two. And this is really the first album for them where I think the first album, Black Sabbath and Paranoid, were basically, everybody knows the first album was basically them playing live in the studio. Very yeah. little overdubs. Paranoid has a little bit more overdubs, but I think on Master of Reality, as I mentioned in the intro, they spent you know roughly three months in the studio recording this. You can hear them starting to experiment a little bit with some different things like the organ thing in uh, Children of the Grave, uh, some more layered guitar stuff, which I think adds to the thickness uh, of the record. And they would progress with that, of course, you know, as they went through Volume 4 and Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath and, and Sabotage. And I think that that's the beginning of that here because probably at this point, none of these songs, when they recorded Paranoid, they had been playing some of those songs going back a ways from their club days, War Pigs. And, and I'm guessing that for this record, they, you know, they had the time in the studio to kind of work on things a little bit more. And you hear, I know there's like some drum overdubs in Children of the Grave, those those uh, Roto Tom sounding Tam Timbales, I think Timbales, yeah. So you can you can hear the band sort of starting to experiment a little bit more uh, with with the sound of the of the studio and uh, well, definitely they they had more time and they had more money and they were also more involved. Um, prior to this, it was Roger Bain and Tom Malum. Mm -hmm. Tom Allen, I believe, was out of it at this point, and um, I think it was Tony Iommi that was more or less at the helm, along with Roger Bain, if I'm not mistaken. You know, I don't, I don't, I think that uh, I have to double check, but I, I think that it was this was Iommi's first crack at actual production for the band. Um, yeah, I think they were definitely. At this point, they're three albums in. They're starting from everything that I've read from them. They were starting to feel more comfortable in the studio and being able to kind of say, take a little bit more control. Whereas on the first album, they're young, never been in a studio before. They just walk in and play and left everything to to the engineers and the producer. Uh, but by the time Master of Reality comes around, they're uh, you know they're starting to assert themselves more on the on the way things are being done, the way things are being recorded uh, yeah. in the studio. So this was more of a, this was less of a live album, which the previous two were, were sort of, you know, well, especially Black Sabbath, because I think, what was it? 
forget what it was. It was like only a couple weeks or something when they recorded yeah. that. 12 hours? Is that what it was? 12 hours they did that? Well, the first <laughs> album, yeah. Yeah. And, and Paranoid wasn't much longer than that. It sort of still had the same uh, live album, play a live set, record it, you know, mix it, put it out. This one was definitely more of a uh, album. We're going to work on this. We're going to try to incorporate some overdubs. And, you know, it was, it was less of like a live album and more of, I don't know if you'd say it was a conceptual thing, but it wasn't really. But it was more of a stopgap. We're not just going to take a, a short break and record an album and get back out on the road again. We're going to stop, write songs, go in the studio, spend some time, do some overdubs, really make this a, you know, a, a cool sounding record and then go on tour for 14 months. <laughs> but yeah, it was definitely a different, a different uh, school of thought involved with Master of Reality than the previous two. And I mean, it paid off. I mean, classic songs. I mean, songs that would forever be a part of their set, you know, even up to the last time they toured. I mean, you know, we definitely heard Children of the Grave, Sweet Leaf, uh, into the, void. into the void, you know, I mean, that was, well, definitely Children of the Grave and Sweet Leaf. In fact, Children of the Grave, Ozzy would take that with him when he went solo. Yeah. Uh, Iron Man, Children of the Grave. I mean, the classic song, um, you know, this album, Birth, Children of the Grave, which would forever be a, a Black Sabbath classic. So. Yeah, it's probably the only other, when you think about Black Sabbath songs that you have a chance of hearing, on classic rock radio. From Paranoid, you have, of course, War Pigs, Paranoid, and Iron Man, and, and Fairies Wear Boots. And then from this album, Children of the Grave. Children of the Grave and Sweet Leaf, possibly, although semi-controversial because of the subject matter. Interesting thing, though, about that, um, the name was, I don't know if you know this, I found this whilst going through the internet, it was Sweet Leaf was taken from a pack of cigarettes called Sweet Aftons. And the, the, slo the slogan was, the sweetest leaf you can try, <laughs> cigarettes. They applied that to, I guess, a marijuana motif and Sweet Leaf was born. But the name Sweet Leaf came from a brand of cigarettes in England called Sweet Aftons. The sweetest leaf you will ever try. So, yeah. uh, well, that segues us into, uh, we'll start talking about some of the songs here. So we've got 34 minutes and 29 seconds of music, uh, eight songs. It's actually kind of a brief, if you take out Embryo and Orchid, the short instrumental things, you've really only got six songs mm -hmm. on this album and it is sort of a brief one and it, we were just talking here. The album starts with a big hacking cough and then leads into the sweet leaf. Which do, you know apparently... do you know who's coughing? Naomi. Yeah, Tony Naomi. <laughs> Sabbath trivia all over the place. For those who are young enough to not remember life before the internet, when I first got on the internet and started finding other Black Sabbath fans on the blacksabbath.com forum. These were very common questions that would get bounced around and debated. And this was one of them. Who, 
who is that coughing at the beginning of Sweet Leaf? <laughs> it's sort of, you know, people know it now, but back then stuff like that was, uh, it was a mystery and something to be endlessly debated on a forum. <laughs> the irony is that this is actually before the band really got, and when we get to, to volume four, we'll, we'll, we'll have to talk about it because the drug use became a big issue or it became a big part of their recording process. And even if we don't want to get into their lifestyles, decisions, I mean, volume four, it's almost impossible not to talk about that when you're talking about volume four. But in the case of Master of Reality, the band really didn't, I mean, they drank, they smoked, they smoked pot, but nothing was really that intense as it would be probably a year later. But uh, you know, it was more recreational, and, and Sweet Leaf was sort of a sort of a fun song. They they kind of wanted to kick the album off on a you know a, on a fun on a fun uh, on a fun note. And they said that Tony had just taken a big hit and coughed, and they got it on tape, and they were going to you know erase it. But then they thought, oh, it'd be kind of fun to to leave that on there and start off the song with that. And that's what they did, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Can't hearing sweetly without that cough in the beginning, uh, but yeah, I mean, so, but my point about you know the, the the lack of you know drugs being more of like a recreational thing um, at this point, it was sort of like you know the era that they were into. I mean, it was you know marijuana was was you know the recreational drug of choice probably at that point, but um, it, it it didn't overwhelm the. Uh, the work ethic at that time, I think it did later on, but at, at this point, I think the band were pretty, um, moving along pretty good. You know, it was a, two albums prior to this were successful. They've had successful tours. They were really, you know, firing on all cylinders. Things were moving forward. They were serious, uh, writing, very creative, and, and the creative juices were flowing. Uh, they were excited about being in the studio. They were, they were ambitious while they were in the studio. So, and that's kind of the tone that that was the backdrop of this album was that this is the band really functioning and very productive and might be the most productive time in the band's history because like i said shortly after this we get into an area where lifestyle choices start to interfere but at, at this point you know everything was really productive and, and pretty professional and uh and it shows because this is a very focused album i think yeah. yeah, they're certainly on a on a roll at this point. They're coming off of the success of Paranoid. And uh, yeah, Sweet Leaf, I think it's a great album opener. That main riff is, here's, it's interesting because you can pick apart the Sabbath catalog and you've got certain albums, certain songs that you can say, well, this, this birthed heavy metal or this birthed doom metal. And a lot of people always point to Master of Reality as the album that births Stone of Rock. And you sort of hear that a little bit in the Sweet Leaf uh, main riff. And I love the part in the song where it goes into the guitar solo and it's sort of this, at this point, it's a, they did something similar like this in the guitar solo in War Pigs where Iomi's soloing and, and geezer and bill are just nope. jamming out and going crazy underneath it's it's the same thing in this maybe even dialed up <laughs> to yeah 10. they're just going totally 
totally nuts in this geezer yeah. build. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like a drum solo yeah, underneath Iomi's. Yeah, underneath Iomi's solo, and it's it's awesome. It's it's yeah. this classic Sabbath thing where they're 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 doing one tempo, and then they're able to shift gears out of that tempo. They're just sort of uh, build place that drum fill that sort of slows it down a little bit, and then they go back into that heavy you know, sludgy main riff of the song, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah, it has that breakaway drum thing where he's freaking out on the snare drum. It is a little bit, you know, drum-wise, there's a little bit of that that wonky uh, rack tom thing going on. And I, I don't think he, I think he was still playing with, with smaller drums at this point. I don't think he really started moving on to the bigger drums until volume four, but you can hear that, that wonky, uh, 12 inch rag tom or whatever it was and um, it's a little a little strange to hear but yeah I mean he's, he's just going through this drum freak out and it's really cool because it, it's just you could tell it's unscripted it's just completely improvised but then he winds out on a, on a, on a roll and then two count and then back into the beginning <laughs> again it's just right on time and perfectly executed yeah, it's great. And and I love that Iomi, I mean, he did this a, a bunch of times back then where when he was soloing, there's like two guitars going on at the same time. So it's, you've got two guitars soloing at the same time. You've got the drums and the bass just going yeah. crazy underneath and it all just sort of, uh, it all just sort of works out, which I think is really, really awesome. So Great riff. I mean, if, if you were making a top 10, top 15 Sabbath riffs, if someone put Sweet Leaf in there, I, I don't think I could argue with no. them. That's sort of an iconic, uh, you yep. know, classic Sabbath riff. For sure. All right. So then next, it moves into how we talked about this on the Paranoid album. There's all these, uh, what would you call them, not subtitles that... Uh, written before some of the, the proper titles that they used to try to make it seem like there were more songs on the album. So on some copies, it's listed as The Elegy and then After Forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on some copies that was on there. I don't know. I think it was random. I do have a promo copy of, uh, of the first Warner Brothers and it's a white label promo copy. And they're not these alternative or these additional song titles aren't on that. So the only time I've ever seen any of these is on random green label Warner brothers records. And I don't know at what point they came out, maybe they're part of the first pressing, but certainly the, the white label promo would be a first pressing. It's not on that. So I, I don't know what issues they ended up on, but yeah, it was well. It was well known that there were certain copies that had these additional song titles, and I think it was just as you said to to bring the song, make it look like the song count was a little bit higher than it, than it actually was. And yes. I mean, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't something that was new. They did that on on Paranoid too. Jack the Stripper, Loops Wall. You know, so it was kind of a Sabbath thing to do. But they did drop it. You know, subsequently. Yes, according to Wikipedia, it was on the first North American editions of the album it came with these little things. I remember for the first time seeing that I, I, I met somebody that had an eight track <laughs> version of this album and they were showing it to me and 
I had never seen these before. And I was like, whoa, what is this? The Elegy, uh, After Children of the Grave, it says The Haunting, Before Lord of This World, there's a song called Step Up and Before Into the Void, there's a song called Death Mask. And I remember freaking out when this guy showed me this eight track and being young and not knowing any better before the internet. I was thinking like, whoa, does this guy like have a version of Master of Reality that's got like four extra songs on it? And then the guy played some of it and and then I realized like, wait a minute, this is, oh, okay, I I get it. Well, like I said, I have I have the white label promo Warner Brothers, and I, I'm I mean I don't know why they would put out a promo on a second pressing. Maybe they did, but I I'd always assumed that was a first pressing white label promo, and they're not on there, so I I don't know. Um, yeah, it's one of these weird weird things in their catalog. So after forever, the lyrics are very interesting in this song. Maybe one of the more interesting lyrics of Black Sabbath, a band that's that's mostly, you know, it's at, at this time getting getting a reputation for being an occult or satanic band. And then they put out the song After Forever. And as we mentioned in the as I mentioned in the introduction, this song is credited to just Tony Iommi, but after doing some research, we learned that Geezer did in fact write the lyrics for this song. Geezer uh, was raised Catholic, and the lyrics in this song are uh, sort of address uh, God. And uh, apparently this was corrected when they put out the black box. There's a mention in there, Geezer gets the proper writing credit in there, but on the album, the original album versions, it just lists it as Iomi, but the lyrics are you know, they're interesting because, again, Black Sabbath had a reputation at this time, and then they come out with a song like After Forever. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think Black Sabbath ever really, well, I, I guess on the song Black Sabbath, there was some occult, um, you know, black magic kind of a, an influence, but I don't think they had necessarily really gone too far with the satanic image at this point. But yeah, even just for a heavy metal band or a hard rock band from that that time, it would be, and it was... Uh, unusual for a band to be what seems to be openly religious in a song. Um, but I mean, I always thought that it, it, the way that the, the lines were phrased and the way that each verse kind of asks questions and then the last verse pretty much gives you the assessment of how they think you answered those questions. <laughs> um, it was almost like it had a sarcastic or a sardonic undertone toward them so was it really christian or was it a mocking kind of a thing was it possibly like the most satanic or you know anti-religious song i don't know um certainly in the context of black sabbath it's it's an odd song but uh when 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 you read a little bit into it you know that geezer was religious and remained pretty religious throughout there's a time when he says that he did uh, dabble in the occult, but I think he was always pretty much Catholic at heart, and I think that um, the lyrics were to be taken pretty much as they as they appear. You know, where are you with religion? Are you know, is your mind so small that you have to run with the pack? You know, or will you fear when death is near and say that you may as well worship the sun? It's pretty much putting a narrative out there that. You know, if you want to follow the right course in life, you got to, you know, embrace 
God, God is love. And that's kind of the theme of the lyrics. So it's, it's strange to see that in a Black Sabbath song, but in context of this album and, and how it carries over into the title master of reality, the album really focuses on um, what's going on in the world at this time. Kids are coming back from Vietnam. Um, you know, the world was really shaken up at this point. And, uh, and this album lyrically is a reaction to that. Um, prior to this, you know, they did dabble in some fantasy. There was, you know, Iron Man, and it has maybe a socio-political theme behind it, but you know, the concept of the Iron Man was sort of a fantasy uh, element on that album. Also, Fairies Wear Boots, The Wizard. There wasn't any of that on this album. It's all pretty much directly a direct correlation to, you know, the war, um, the people fighting. And I think after forever was bringing religion into it that look, you know, this world is so full of hate right now. You have to love and you have to uh, embrace God. So I think in the context of this album, it makes sense that it would be taken literally. But I agree. It's a strange, strange song. It's raised many questions over the years, I'm sure. Yeah, and Black, Black Sabbath was, to, to the outsider, to people that don't know Black Sabbath, they always get sort of lumped into one thing. And as fans, we know better. We know that they, their lyrics touched on a lot of different things uh, in fantasy, environmental. I mean, Geezer always comes across as, as, as a thinker, a philosophizer, if you will. Uh, so it, it's, uh, yeah, to me, it was just another facet of, of what Black Sabbath was. They're like sort of observers of life. Uh, like you mentioned with the, with the title of the album, you know, Masters of Reality, they're observing different, different realities uh, that they were living in at that time. So I do remember that uh, when Ozzy was touring around for, in his early solo career and he was getting a lot of heat for shows getting uh, canceled and banned and stuff like that because of the stuff with animals and all this satanic panic of the eighties. Mm -hmm. I, I distinctly remember he was going to play a show in our, my home, my area where I lived and the show landed up getting canceled. But for weeks leading up to this, there was uh people writing into the editorial section. This is before social media, this is before the internet. And all the kids, you know, all the parents were all this, oh, all this satanic stuff. And all the kids were coming back with their letters were, yeah, but there's this song after forever. And they would, you know, quote some lyrics from this song, like, see, Ozzy's not so bad. You know, he's, he's a good guy. And, <laughs> But this is where, I mean, the band themselves complained about how when the first album came out, it had the Upside Down Cross and in, in the middle of the gatefold thing. It was never really something, it's something that just sort of fell on them. And I guess in some ways, when you have a name like Black Sabbath, you're going to draw that kind of attention, I guess, a little bit. But the band was never, you know, when you really add it all up, they were a band that sang about a lot of different things. And and just after forever for me, it's just a continuation of that. Then looking at different aspects of life, yeah. religion, reality. 
But it's the only song that really addresses religion. I mean, there's maybe a line or two in certain songs uh, from this point on, not really anything before, but this is the only song that really pretty much focuses on religion for the entire time. Um, after this, you know, you might see a line or two, but one of the things that makes this song unique is that it's, well, this, the title After Forever, you know, you know, I guess dealing with what, the afterlife, you know, you know, the spirituality and how it pertains to you and the, after you die, um, the, the whole song is focused on that as, as a concept. I don't think there's been any other song since then that, that, that did that. Um, I, regarding the satanic thing, I, I, I don't think it was a conscious decision on their part, but I don't think that they objected to it. And I think it was something that kind of served them. Um, kids were, were drawn to it. I think they probably attracted more people to what they were doing because of that. Um, the name Black Sabbath was an alternative from the original name, which was Earth. They decided that they were going to go with the name Black Sabbath because they thought, well, look, you know, all these people lining up outside of this movie theater to be scared. Um, people are interested in that. Why don't, why don't we do that? Why don't we, you know, the, the equivalent of a horror movie, but set to music, so that they adopted the name Black Sabbath from the, the movie Black Sabbath. Um, so I don't think that they tried to shy away from anything that was kind of horror or on the outskirts of modern culture. I, I, I think they embraced that, and I think it did serve them well. But, you know, they weren't really a satanic band, as anybody knows. Um, you know, it, quite the opposite, actually. I think they tried to, you know, talk about doing things that were spiritually uh, right. You know, um, this album is, is full of things like that, you know, talking about uh, children of the grave, you know, all you children of today are children of the grave if you don't wake up and, you know, learn how to love and be kind to one another and you know, say your prayers before you go to bed and, <laughs> you know, and all that stuff. I mean, that was sort of like the underlying theme is that, you know, there's a lot of hate in this world, but you got to start to love. You gotta, we have to love one another and this is what's going on and we need to, to stop doing this and, and get on with living peacefully. And so, I mean, that was always sort of the lyrical concept. And But behind that all, I mean, there also was this dark, dark imagery that I, I think, you know, drew people into them into their music yeah. and this song is interesting this song is interesting because yeah, coming out of sweet leaf i always thought the the intro to this song it's a very sort of uh major key uplifting sort of sound to this main to the intro riff geezer's playing like that that bass line which which is great and then it drops into sort of yeah. the, the main riff uh -huh. in the middle section where it goes into that super heavy. Yeah, it's a great yeah, song. Super yeah. heavy riff there. And then it's another, uh, Iomi stretches out into the solo and, and, and it's just like the bass and drums underneath. Geezer's bass sound on this record. I, oh, his, yeah. His bass sound on the first three albums is great, but I think it maybe, if you're just talking about a heft and thickness to his sound, I think this is maybe Master of Reality is his. Yeah. thickest heaviest sound until we get to uh heaven and hell and mob rolls i mean his bass is just crushing all over this record it's super big it's it's really loud it's like really present 
in the mix. It's got a nice dis distorted sound to it, but it's super deep sounding. And this one in the solo of this, I always think of his, his bass just sounds, just sounds great on this, this whole song and in the solo section, especially. It's very articulate. You, you can really hear it. It is, it's everything you said it is. It's very heavy. It's dense. It's, it's full. It's, it's kind of sludgy, but it's, it's really articulate. It's mixed well. And when you listen to this, when I listen to it on vinyl, I can, I can hear the separation between the rhythm guitar and the bass very distinctly. And I, this is one of the, of the albums I can, I can really hear what Geezer's doing. And you can hear, well, Geezer started out as a guitar player that, that went on to play bass. And he never really follows the guitar part. It's always he, he counters the guitar. He does something that elaborates on the, on the rhythm guitar part. <clears throat> and when you listen to this, you can really hear how he plays off of that. It's really, it's really cool. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's tone for days <laughs> and uh, it just it makes this album sound really heavy. Yeah, he, he always, uh, when, it, when I hear him stretching out underneath the guitar solos when he's just jamming, it always really reminds me of Jack Bruce from Cream, who I know was a geezer always cites as his biggest guy that you know his biggest bass influence and, and jack bruce was sort of legendary for that even though they were a three-piece uh instrumental three-piece just like black sabbath was so when clapton was soloing jack bruce was just underneath him going crazy and i think you know geezer really has a page from that and if you hear jack jack bruce's guitar uh bass sound live with cream he's got that super loud distorted bass sound that uh you know that influenced a lot of, of players from that era and certainly geezer and you can really hear that when when geezer's jamming out with the bends bending notes and just sort of going crazy with all the bass fills it's just great yeah all right then it goes into the short little instrumental embryo yeah, which is kind of a curious thing. I'm not sure what, I'm not even sure what that is. It, it has a weird, almost like it's a, it's like a violin or something. But I guess it's guitar. I, I don't know. It um, is. I, I think it's it's. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. It's it sounds like uh, it's very like a not a synthesizer, but like maybe like a harpsichord or some yeah, sort of weird. I always thought that maybe there was something else mixed in there, but I think all it is is just it sounds like he maybe dubbed his guitar a, a couple times and he's sort of playing this lick with the open strings there's like a higher open string that he's playing against so it yeah. gives it this ringing sound on the on the top end but i know what you mean it has a very sort of unique but uh, it was played live a couple times um oddly enough yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, of course, when they reunited and it, this became a thing that this is what you always heard before Children of the Grave, yeah. uh, you know, it always set up Children of the Grave. And even when he plays it live, it, it doesn't sound exactly like, like the studio, but it no, sounds it's, very, very it's similar. So I think that the sound of it is really him playing these open, higher strings, which is sort of unique, usually when people do things like this they have an open string that's lower and then they're playing something above that low string, but he sort of flips it around here to just give it this sort of harpsichord like piano sound, but it's a, it's a perfect setup for, 
for children of the grave, it, it, it plays and then it just sort of hangs out. And then that main riff from children of the grave uh, kicks in slowly, sort of uh, fades in a little bit. So you, you, in my mind, you can't really hear children of the grave without hearing embryo before it. If I hear embryo, I immediately start hearing children of the grave. Yeah. After I can, yeah. I can hear children of the grave without embryo, but if I hear embryo, I have to have children of the grave afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. It segues beautifully. And again, this was the thing that Sabbath, what I loved about Black Sabbath, what I still love and what I liked as a young kid was you would hear these, you'd hear a song like Sweet Leaf, real sludgy and heavy and crazy middle section. And then After Forever has this strange, uplifting intro. And then Embryo, this like, what is this? And then it goes into the dark heaviness of galloping rhythm of children of the grave. They were really good at, uh, if you go back to Paranoid, like Planet Caravan. To me, what makes these albums so heavy is these contrasts of yeah. light and dark and bright and, and dark and sort of embryo sort of sets sets that up. It's yeah. got this unique feel. And then it all of a sudden, it's just like, like a horror movie. It's like the lights just go out. <laughs> all of a yeah. sudden, yeah. Children of the Grave starts coming in. One of their creepier, yeah. more ominous uh, riffs. Yeah. One of their darker, you know, I, I put Children of the Grave up there with like Under the Sun. And as, as far as just their like really dark, you know, sinister sounding songs, yeah. Children of the Grave is right up there for me. Yeah, you're right, and they do they do that a lot on this album. You know, going from the con contrast of the light to dark, um, definitely with Embryo and Children of the Grave, and then on side two we get into like Orchid and and the song Solitude, and and both Orchid and Solitude are followed by two of the heaviest songs on the album. So, yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a way to kind of make that 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 heavy song have more impact, start it out with a lighter intro because when it kicks in with the heavy you know, it's going to be a lot more effective and, and it seemed like they were pretty much in tune with that and that, that's what they did and it is very effective in the contrast between embryo and children of the grave children of the grave though um is where we start to get into the reality theme of the album lyrically you know um talking about how the next generation has to be the ones that um change the way things are going uh no people are not getting along, we're in the midst of a war, uh, socially, politically, things are really a mess. So all you children of today, you know, lead the way, take us out of this, and, you know, get us onto a, a, a new way of, of living. Um, or you're gonna be children of the grave, <laughs> or you're gonna die. Um, so, you know, it's one of those, prophetic black Sabbath songs with a, uh, you know, kind of a moral behind it. Yeah. It's, it's, to me, it's a classic geezer uh, talking about the environment, destruction of the environment. He, he started that with Iron Man and electric funeral. And to me, this is just a sort of a continuation of that, like nuclear war, pollution, Mm -hmm. atomic bombs are going to lead to to the end of the world and the way he frames it in this yeah. is you know the children of today you know have to 
take control or they'll be the children of the grave. But man, when that main riff kicks in with the whole band, you know, it starts off with just Iomi, but when the whole band kicks in, dun, 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 that right there is classic legendary metal uh the i mean there's a lot of points in black sabbath before this that you could say we talked about paranoid the you know that's a yeah that's a heavy metal trope uh standard heavy metal guitar thing right there well here's another one you know john yeah slowly building until it like gets you know adds more guitar and the drums get louder and then it's like like a tank just yeah it gets rolling and it's like a battlefield or something yeah it just starts out you know very subtle and then builds up to this you know war machine sounding riff yeah absolutely it's just just so heavy and i always loved uh when it goes into that sort of middle section we talked about earlier how there were some little bit more overdubs on this album and in that part right there it is i was listening to it today i mean it's it's, it's some kind of organ or something yeah. yeah but it almost sounds like a toy organ like a kid's <laughs> organ or something which makes it sound all the more yeah. sort of like ominous and, and creepy and i just remember that section hearing that every time that section kicks in it's it's like man that's just so so creepy and ominous it is sounding. It's low in the mix but you're right it does have kind of a kind of a weird sound it doesn't sound like a cool hammond organ or something it sounds like a child's toy but it's mixed low and it gives it just that creepy you know background effect that is pretty effective that was tony iomi tony iomi was experimenting with i think he started to do that planet caravan didn't he play some recorder or something on that yeah i think there might be yeah there's some like piano in there and maybe some flute sounds and yeah we got some flute going on here we've got some piano yeah um tribute that creepy childlike organ to to iomi and in some ways i never really thought of this till right at this moment this is sort of like the iron man of this album it builds yeah. it's got a lot of different sections in and it's got the da 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 so it's got some 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 changes in it it goes eventually goes back to the to the main uh to the main riff and then you have sort of that uh last chord that hits and it holds out there and the sort of the creepy wind noises and the whispering the whispering voice so it's just a really cool way to end side one of the record First time I heard that, it kind of freaked me out. Uh, listening to it in my room at night, and then it, you know the song finished, and it did that. Ch- ch- ch. Like Friday the Thirteenth, Children of the Grave, and it has that. Yeah. that behind sounds like some kind of like warbling, and you can hear wind. Yeah, it's really creepy, yeah. but it's real similar to. Uh, and I always wondered if maybe the Friday the Thirteenth. Thing wasn't taken or wasn't influenced by that death mask portion of Children of the Grave. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they sound that. pretty similar. Ooh, there's like some sort of sound. I don't know what that is, like a slowed down keyboard noise. And yeah, and the voices, you know, children, children, children. 
that's great. And as, as a kid, you know, listening to side one of the cassette, or actually, well, I had this on vinyl, so, you know, listen, hearing that, whoa, whoa what, what is that? Because it is pretty quiet yeah. in the mix. And I remember cranking up my stereo so I could hear it as it sort of droned out and faded out. Because I, I think, here, here's just a funny thing, when I had heard that on the radio, this was one of the songs that I would hear sometimes on classic rock radio. They would always cut it out before yeah. they would just play that last chord and then just, just end it, go into the next song yeah. for the, for the radio show. So when I got that on the, on the vinyl and I was like, Whoa, Whoa, what is that? And I just cranked it up and yeah. listened to it. And yeah, here's some interesting trivia uh, for you. If you listen to uh, the tribute album, when Ozzy did, so we mentioned earlier that this is the first Black Sabbath album that Tony Iommi tuned his guitar down. So those who aren't guitar players, what that means is, is he takes the strings on his guitar and he lowers them. And in, and in this case, he lowers them, I believe it's three steps. So when he played this song with Randy Rhodes, instead of retuning his guitar, uh, so when Tony Iommi plays it, that main riff, he's playing it on his lowest string on his guitar. So what Randy did, instead of tune, retuning his guitar, he just played the song in a different key, essentially a different position on the guitar. So he's not playing off his low string. If you listen to the tribute or any Randy Rhodes era version of the song Children of the Grave, you'll hear he's... It, it, it doesn't have that thick, low string sound on it. Randy just played it. He just he, he played it in a different spot on the guitar yeah. so that the pitches would match, but he was playing it on different strings, essentially. So just a little interesting interpretation. Mm -hmm. of he, he sort of takes a different, different yeah. interpretation of it than they did on, uh, yeah, on this record. It definitely sounds different. I, I just was listening to that the other day, and I noted, yeah, wow. Never noticed how different that sounds, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, a great way to end side one on the record. And then side two starts off with Orchid, which I mentioned earlier. I always loved these Iomi acoustic guitar interlude pseudo classical sounding things. At this point, I had already had Blizzard of Oz. We just talked about Randy Rhodes. I was a huge Randy Rhodes fan. So I always loved things that had a little bit of a classical-ish sound to them and so orchid uh orchid has that sort of all over it and it's sort of an interesting way to start side two of the record yeah um lord of this world from going from orchid to lord of this world is again what you mentioned before it's the um the light going into the heavy the contrast really working in favor of bringing that, that heaviness out. Um, Lord of this world is probably my favorite song on master of reality. Um, I love the riffs. It just, uh, has a real good the way that everything is composed and everything just kind of flows into the next thing. And I love Bill Ward's drumming on this as well. Um, he's hitting the, the bell, I guess on his ride symbol. It's almost like a, kind of a cowbell thing but it's a little bit higher it's obviously a bell i like i like that part really kind of gives it a kind of a cool swing bill bill was definitely the the swing master coming from kind of a jazz background um for sure similar this, 
some ways to John Bonham. I, I said, I think maybe when we were talking about paranoid, that for me, you got John Bonham on one end, Keith Moon on the other, and John and uh, Bill Ward is in the middle. I, I think that it pretty much describes how Bill, Bill Ward played drums. There was, there was a certain dense side to his playing that was real heavy and decisive. And on the other hand, he, you know, Keith Moon was always very sporadic and all over the place. Um, you know, Bill Ward also does that, like we talked about earlier in Sweet Leaf, that, that snare drum freak out part that he does, and then he just kind of rolls out of it, and then it comes back into the main riff. Um, you know, Bill Ward was, was not, there was elements of John Bonham, but I think Bill Ward had that ability to swing a little bit more, and I think on Lord of This World, it really showcases that ability that he had. And, Absolutely. And when that verse riff kicks in, the bum, ba da da that right there is, is where it's what it's all about probably the swingiest song on this particular album and we were talking earlier about stoner rock you know this is right there that kind of groovy swing super heavy down tune thick riff but underneath it is you know bills that back there just playing this sort of almost funky swingy type beat yeah, always a little bit behind the beat. Uh, it was kind of Bill Ward saying he'd always be just a bit behind the beat, um, but it worked because it, you know, it allowed him the ability to really swing and, and play off of the rhythm a lot, you know. Yeah, and then when it goes in, like you said, the da 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 Lord of this world. And it's it's weird. It doesn't really get to like sort of the chorus of the song till a little bit later in the later, song. And yeah. it's another unique thing about Black Sabbath. They were never a verse chorus, verse chorus, guitar solo type of band. They're if when you really listen to their songs, it's 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 not like that. The choruses of their songs, like this song, doesn't really come in until you know towards the towards the end of the song. So it's really it's interesting how they they arrange their songs, all the different sections, yeah. and I've often wondered how how they did that a lot of times, and I, and I guess they did it together. I mean, as a band, I I think that it would. If I had to hazard a guess, I, I'd say that it was probably everything was mostly based off of Iommi's riffs that lent to jams, and then having Ozzy while all this was going on, you know, there he would try to sing something over what was going on. So I think it was the interesting thing about Black Sabbath. I think that all the songs were basically a collaborative effort, um, which each musician having their own contribution, but I think it all happened at the same time. And that's how a lot of these songs were built. Iommi would come in with the riff, he'd jam it out with Geezer, Bill would join in, you know, Bill always described himself as a reactionary drummer. Um, and when you listen to him, the way he plays, there isn't he doesn't always necessarily format what he's doing so just because he maybe hits the crash symbol on the first time the first rep of that particular part doesn't mean he's going to do it every time you know he, he reacts to what the music is making him feel so you can hear that the riff was probably introduced geezer joined in on bass put some you know some rhythm behind it um, the award kicks in and then Ozzy would just start probably singing over something and yeah. that would be the melody and then they would agree that that sounded cool they'd remember that 
Uh, Ozzy would sing out the melody. Maybe he'd have some lyrics. Occasionally, Geezer would say that some of the lyrics that some of the things that Ozzy was singing would be used, and sometimes they would use that exactly. Other times they would use a portion of it, and sometimes they wouldn't use it at all. Geezer would just take the melody and write some lyrics against it. But I'm yeah, I think at this time it was a real uh, just a natural thing that they didn't really think about it. It was an unconscious thing that they just sort of. So you'll read interviews with Bill. Well, well, Bill will sometimes describe it as there being a fifth band member, meaning sort of this unconscious thing that they just got in a room together and it just happened. It really wasn't planned. It wasn't thought out. And I think as time went on with some of the later albums and where they began to struggle was when that uh, natural flow wasn't happening anymore, whether it be because of chemicals, uh, things, influences outside of their lives, tampering with sort of that uh, Zen-like approach that they had early on, which was just sort of getting in a room and it just, you know, this, the energy of these, these yeah. four guys now without really even having to say anything or, or to, to articulate anything, this stuff just sort of naturally naturally happened and i think really the first three albums is 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 really what that's all about yeah i I think this is the last album that probably had that yeah thing going on because i think right after this things started to get kind of different they started to go down a different path yeah and i think they had to start thinking about it more and and you could say maybe forcing it more i mean the results are still great after this but i think that that whole just sort of unconscious and maybe yeah maybe too it's as as they got more popular and more pressure uh, outside forces lawyers lawsuits drugs they start second guessing what they're doing they start thinking harder about what they're doing and it becomes just a little bit harder. It, it doesn't come as naturally as it did for them on these first three records. Yeah. These first three records feel very natural. They don't feel uh, like they were forced or they had to think this out a lot. It just really sounds like a band that, that could just get in a room, and which is amazing that they could just get in a room and, and put out an album like this really with, just not much effort it was just inside them they just they just had this to be able to put out put out an album like this without having to force it or anything it was just natural to them at this point well these four guys had a connection musically and i think that the amount of time that they spent together uh, playing live touring I, i think that only strengthened it i think that only strengthened their connection as things began to to progress and they became a bigger band you know air quotes on bigger um outside influences uh you know chemical influences started to pull them apart and the connection was kind of lost um but at this point it was really strong and um it's probably why these first three you know maybe four albums are or the most um cohesive i think of their entire catalog and they're undeniably i think if you talk to anybody especially if you talk to those people that, that think only the first six albums matter. Uh, but if you <laughs> like talk the t-shirt says, yeah, right. Well, you know, it's, it's a popular phrase too, among, you know, certain, certain groups of people. But, you know, you have, you have that group of people and then you have people like you and I who, 
you know, love every era of Sabbath and appreciate it, you know, all together. It's still undeniable that the first three albums are probably the most cohesive Black Sabbath albums. You know, there's, there, there's no hint of anything going on in the background that was, you know, distracting. You know, there's a lot of focus and definitely what these three albums are what established Black Sabbath. What happens after this really only elaborates on what they've already done uh, in some ways better, in some ways not so effective, just more or less, you know, kind of treading water. But, you know, these three albums is pretty much where Black Sabbath, the band, was at its, at its zenith, I guess we could say, at the strongest point. Yeah. So then it moves into solitude, which for me, I always, uh, I always associate this song with Planet Caravan because it's yeah. got the same sort of atmospheric, moody thing. It's got the effect on the vocals. Uh, this is a song that I think when we were talking about Paranoid, I was talking about there being flute and mm -hmm. this is the song that I, I think I was thinking of. There's like little, little like flute trills and stuff in it. And it's, it's very much like uh, Planet Caravan. It's, it's, it's kind of trippy, uh, takes, takes the mood, uh, you know, uh, brings everything down, uh, takes you to yeah. a different place. It, uh, yeah, it's a little different from Planet Caravan. It does kind of have that, that same marker in the uh, kind of like uh, intermission type of thing, a little break from all the heaviness that's longer than 30 seconds or a minute. You know, this is actually a, you know, three minute song. Uh, well, the one thing about, well, it's different from Planet Caravan. Planet Caravan was kind of a trippy, you know, kind of like a peaceful floating through the universe, you know, kind of psychedelic. This is about, losing you know like a, a loved one or a broken romance or something or like a she's gone a precursor to the song she's gone uh, the subject matter is somebody who's obviously in emotional distress so it's a little heavier emotionally than than planet caravan but man up until just recently i could have sworn that bill ward sang this song and i i know now because i, I especially on this deluxe Warner Brothers Rhino edition where they have the un, uh, where they have the, the, the tracks that aren't uh, mixed and there's no effect on the voice. You can, you can hear it. It's clearly Ozzy. But whenever I would listen to Master of Reality and Solitude would come on, it sounded to me, it didn't sound like Ozzy. I always thought it was Bill Ward. The people would say, no, 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 it's Ozzy. And I'm like, I don't know. Are you sure? Well, yeah, this, this, this was another one of those things that was in the early days of the internet was just endlessly debated. Yeah. I remember on the black-sabbath.com site, he even eventually just put it in the frequently asked questions <laughs> section of the website because it, it was like one of the most frequently asked questions. Who's that singing on solitude? It was the same thing with Planet Caravan. Nobody knew. And being that Bill, everybody knew that Bill sang It's All Right, that was like public knowledge, so yeah. to speak. You know, it was just assumed that, well, this, it, it doesn't sound like Ozzy. So everybody yeah. just assumed the next most likely person to be singing it would be, uh, would be Bill. So. Yeah, but it does kind of sound like Bill's voice. Yeah. Know? As we know, hearing him sing on uh, It's All Right, it sounds like the same guy. Uh, but it's Ozzy. It doesn't sound like Ozzy, but 
it is. And you can really yeah. hear it when you, I guess it's a Leslie effect on that as well. The same as Planet Caravan. Yeah. And, and like you said, the lyrics on this one are pretty sort of dark and depressing uh, type of type of thing. So yeah, it's an interesting setup for the final song on this record, which is kind of like the end of side one. Side one ends with children in the grave, real dark and heavy. And side two ends the same way with Into the Void, which is kind of another geezer destruction of the planet. Mm -hmm. Time to time to leave because we screwed everything up. Uh, lyric and another one of, again, if you're making a list of some of the heaviest Sabbath riffs, the main, well, the intro riff is super heavy, but that main verse riff is just, oh, wow, it's just crushing. Yeah. This one, they said Ozzy had a difficult time with singing in the studio. He couldn't quite get the phrasing right. He wasn't sure how to, how to sing it. And there's a lot of lyrics in this song, too. If you're looking at the album and you're looking at the lyrics, you can see, but wow, man, there's a lot to sing. But they said that Geezer was quoted as saying that they, they had a little bit of a difficulty with Ozzy trying to keep the pace, trying to find the right tempo. And it is kind of an unusual. You know, it's just it's unusual vocal phrasing. It goes right along with the riff. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's definitely a different type of phrasing, vocal phrasing than any other song on the album. So you can see how it might be something that I'm initially presented and described. Maybe you had a hard time getting his head wrapped around it. But it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just the, the the heaviness of the riff and the contrast of the opening riff, which is kind of like this bluesy, slightly slow swing thing, and then it just sort of stops and goes into that ominous again. Yeah, another birth of doom metal, birth of stoner. This is one of those riffs. Riff. Yes, it's one of those riffs where I mean, I was just listening to this last week, I think, and and sitting there thinking. How did he come up with this? What was the influence? And there's a lot of riffs like that. Like, where did he, I mean, you know, you, you can hear how some things are pulled from the blues, like heavy blues, but this is one of those riffs that's like, man, where did that come from? How did he think of that? Yeah, and there's really nobody at this time, my, my gosh, in 71, there's nobody as heavy as this. I mean, other people always cite as the other big heavy bands at this time being Deep Purple and Uriah Heep and, and they do have some heavy things yeah, sure. on their records but nothing was as ominous and dark sounding as what Black Sabbath was doing and stuff like Children of the Grave or Into the Void. Nobody was playing as sort yeah. of sinister sounding riffs no, uh, but, like this. Yeah, I, th I think in both those cases, Uriah Heep and Deep Purple, there was an obvious blues influence and they made it heavier. They turned it up. Um, and, and that was sound heavy, but there was always that, that blues and, and, and Sabbath too, but, but definitely in your eye heap and, and deep purple, there was always a very strong blues influence. It was just amplified louder with, with black Sabbath. There was that, but then in addition, and this is what makes black Sabbath such an extraordinary band. And, and I, I was just thinking a little while ago, Black Sabbath is one of those bands where it's it's not like I don't know, like uh, 
I know there's fans of, 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 of these bands that I'm going to mention that would cite them as their favorite bands. But it, Black Sabbath isn't like a Thin Lizzy. They're not like a Uriah Heap. They're not like a bad company. Um, they, if you like Black Sabbath, you really like Black Sabbath. They're <laughs> one of they're my favorite band and have been for years. They are my favorite band because there's just something really special about them. You don't get into Black Sabbath and say, okay, yeah, that's cool. I like it. I'm not, you know, I'm not really that into it. Um, if you really like Black Sabbath, you really like it. I really like Thin Lizzy. I really like Your Eye Heat. I really like Bad Company and Jethro Tull and so on and so on. But they don't have quite the same effect on me as Black Sabbath does. There's so many layers to this band, you know, and I started out talking about how, how Tony came up with this riff. That's one of the reasons. It just makes you think, this band is just something above and beyond their peers at the time. Where did this riff come from? You know, the, the riff to, you know, Children of the Grave isn't a, your standard, like, oh, it's influenced by the blues. I mean, you can kind of hear that, but it's taken it so much further than that. Um, every song on here, really. I mean, there, there is obviously a blues influence, but where it, where it goes, so creative and so unique. It's undeniable that Black Sabbath was probably the most, we're biased, I'm biased, but Black Sabbath was the most influential, most important band, I think, of, of the 70s as far as hard rock, heavy metal is concerned. Um, it's one of the reasons why. That, that, void, that rift to Into the Void, it blows my mind. Where did that come from? How did he yeah. think, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Black Sabbath had such a, not that Uriah Heep and Deep Purple, of course, they had their own sounds to talk about Uriah Heep, Deep Purple, but they sort of moved around in, in different things. And whereas Black Sabbath, they just really seemed to have, they found their own corner in the room and staked it out. And they just sort of created their own, they found a dark corner in the room and they went and, and, and planted their stake there. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's blues based, but definitely Iomi takes this and he goes somewhere completely different with it. Yeah. Whereas Deep Purple took it and went in one direction with it. Uriah Heap went in a different direction with it and Black Sabbath goes in their own. And, and it's, and it is something, they were a lot, uh, I think Black Sabbath, you know, the heavy riffs, the heavy lyrics, the, the, the album covers, just, just the whole thing, you know, it just lent itself to, to an intensity that, uh, very dark, very dark. And, and your eye heap was, had its moments where, it would, where they would be dark, but they'd always get kind of light. Um, your eye heap, and I love your eye heap. I mean, the, the part of the Holy Grail, the Holy Grail for me is deep purple, the Black Sabbath deep purple in your eye heap. Um, but your eye heap should always have the disclaimer for fans of deep purple. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're like the poor man's deep purple. David Byron always sounded to me like a, uh, uh, you know, like Ian Gillen. And of course you had a real prominent keyboard sound with a keyboardist that was really gifted, but not quite as good as John Lord. Uh, guitar player Mick Box was a good guitar player, but not as good as Richie Blackmore. So you're kind of like the poor man's deep purple. But, uh, Black Sabbath stood out amongst nearly everybody. And I, I, I think it was because, like you said, they, they did occupy that decidedly dark, darker than everyone else. There was no other band that had that kind of dark vibe 
like Black Sabbath did. They, they, they were, they had no rival. <laughs> there was no one else that sounded like Black Sabbath. There's no other band that was as heavy as Black Sabbath. Yeah, and they also found a really nice, uh, I won't say formula, but a thing that they had, like in Into the Void is an example of this. They do this in Iron Man. We've talked about this. They did this in Sweet Leaf. You know, in Into the Void, they go into the freedom fighters better to the sun. This sort of frantic thing. And then all of a sudden, it goes from fifth gear back down to first gear. That sort of sudden gear shift thing. That was really the Black Sabbath. I keep saying it's these contrasts, these contrasts between fast and then dropping down into slow. And It is. And it's a little bit formulaic in the sense that that combination is is pretty much first appeared on electric funeral drops down back to the beginning so i mean you know but i mean they were the only ones doing that so even if they did kind of like rehash it you know for the next album it was still theirs and they can they invented that shit and they could they can keep doing it i guess you know but yeah it's another thing that made them unique there's the way that they would put the songs together and have and and just throw in a part that you would never expect. And I mean, I wish that I could go back and listen to these albums again for the first time because I remember my mind being blown with some of these, you know, passages that were so detached from what was occurred from what occurred before, but it fitting together so well. It was just let's just do this. <laughs> you know it's probably really fast we'll do that for a couple measures and then go back to the beginning like what are you crazy no 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 listen oh wow that works yeah who would have thought that was one of the yeah. things that they were good at absolutely so as we mentioned earlier uh they of course toured for this record and Typically, they in the typical set list for this tour, they played Sweet Leaf and Embryo leading into Children of the Grave. But uh, we also have some earlier shows with uh, Darren can tell us about here where they actually played After Forever with some slightly modified lyrics. Uh, At this point, uh, it was even before the album had come out, I believe. Right, Darren? Yeah. So this was the first live recording i have is from the 14th of january 1971 which of course the album came out in july so this was quite a few months before the album came out um they started recording i think in april february through april they were recording the album so this was even before they started recording right before they even went into the studio and what's kind of strange about it so so the set was war pigs into the void with different lyrics uh iron man uh, the guitar intro to Black Sabbath, and then After Forever, which again had what's described as alternative lyrics, probably because the lyrics weren't written, and they were probably just melodies that Ozzy filled in the gaps with just you know nonsensical words or phrases or whatever. Uh, followed by Wicked World, Fairies Wear Boots, and Paranoid. What's interesting about it is they picked Into the Void and After Forever to more or less premiere from the upcoming album but once the album came out those two songs were dropped in favor of sweet leaf and children of the grave now i'm not sure if it's because of just listening to these recordings they the music sounds verbatim um the lyrics of course are different but you know the melodies there's there's no hiccups everything sounds good 
Um, maybe they just preferred to play Sweet Leaf and Children of the Grave after the recording of the album. Personally, I think it would have been cool to hear Into the Void more, more frequently. And I have, I have quite a few live recordings from 71, and this is the only one. I think there was another show um, that was either the day before, I think it was the 13th. They played two shows back to back in the UK, and both those shows have After Forever and Into the Void. Um, but just interesting that they, those After Forever and Into the Void were only played a couple times. And then when the album came out, we had Sweet Leaf and Children of the Grave consistently, not only for that tour, but from that point onward, they were staples of the live set. Um, Children of the Grave, definitely. I think Sweet Leaf would come and go from time to time, depending on the length of the set. But Children of the Grave was right there with like Iron Man and yeah, that became uh, that became the. The, the, the lasting song from this record. Interesting that uh, the singles that were released from this record were After Forever and Children of the Grave. So, yeah. And I believe that one early live recording of uh, Into the Void that you were talking about there, uh, Ozzy does very slightly change the melody line and they play it pretty fast too. It's like a much faster mm -hmm. version, which yeah. is interesting because it's before they recorded the song. Yeah. So they must've went into the studio and thought to themselves, Hey, let's, let's slow this down a little. Usually when you hear bands, when at the end of the tour, all the songs are way fast. Songs tend to get faster as the yeah. tour goes on, but this was sort of the reverse. They were playing it fast early on, and then they must have went into the studio and decided to to slow it down. And, yeah, so. and as I mentioned, they they said that there was that Ozzy had some difficulty singing it, and and I think it was probably because the lyrics that Geezer wrote, you know, being putting a more cohesive theme behind these lyrics whereas before Ozzy was probably comfortable enough if he could just sort of move along uh with with, with the phrasing but sort of comfortable with his own words and li listening to that recording there there is no discernible theme to those lyrics they're just sort of whatever comes to his mind maybe but, that's what it was yeah they decided yeah, for him to be able to that. spit all these lyrics out they needed to slow yeah. it down but if he had to remember these lyrics and probably the phrasing you know the the way that the words were phrased, it was probably more difficult for him to get that into that song. And then in order for him to do that, to read the lyrics, they probably had to slow it down a little bit so that he can get the phrasing right. And yeah. yeah. I mean, it would be really difficult, but you're right. It, it is faster. And at first I thought, well, maybe it was a tape speed. I thought the same thing because it is so much faster. Yeah. But when you listen to his voice, um, it, it seems like it's in the right pitch. So, no, they yeah. were playing it faster. Yeah, and for people out there, I'm, I'm sure you can look this up on YouTube and in, in here if you type in Into the Void Live 71, 72, you'll find 71, you'll find this really early version of Into the Void. So, yeah, all right. Uh, maybe one last final thought on the album cover we didn't talk about the album cover this is interesting i was thinking of this today that black sabbath never really had a band one consistent band logo if you will they're not like iron maiden for instance you know that always had the same mm -hmm. way they wrote their name black sabbath never had that but if there is one font or whatever you want to call it one way it was 
written, uh, this is probably the most recognizable one, the sort of wavy master of reality, Black Sabbath, uh, a name. It's one that's been used a lot. Um, and, and I think it's because of the, of the content of the album. It's like the association, the, the logo itself really isn't that, it's not that outstanding. I mean, it's, it's sort of like a basic block letter, but it's sort of like, like as if it's a flag and it's, it's waving in the wind, it's sort of ripple, yeah. the ripple effect. But I think that every time I see that, it's generally the same color scheme too. And it's like, you know, a lot of bands will do this from time to time, especially in the contemporary context where we'll take an iconic logo and they'll copy it. And I think it's to sort of, you know, draw the association of that band to what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's like Iron Maiden. If you write anything with that, like let style lettering it ever you immediately, yeah. it's, their, their name is so iconic. And it's the same thing with, with uh, the master of reality, wavy black Sabbath thing. If you write anything with lettering like that, everybody knows what you're referencing. <laughs> yeah. Was well, it church of misery from Japan or do yeah. band have used that? on one of their albums or at least maybe a couple albums. Yeah. Um, and even, even just the color of the, you know, the purple, uh, yeah. the purple name and everything, it just works in a really cool, the way the master of reality is in black. And on the, if I'm correct on the early versions of the album, it's sort of a, what would you call that raised? Uh, uh, embossed. embossed. Yeah. 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 And the original uh, version even came with a poster on the inside, right? Yeah, um, yeah, it did. That's right. Yeah, the uh, U.S. and U.K. The U.K. version, the, the Vertigo, came in a box. It was a box with a thin spine, but it was had a you know it was like a, a very thin box, and you pulled the album out and had the Vertigo, which I have it over here, but it had the uh, the swirl inner sleeve, and it had a poster. A textured poster. It was like maybe 16 by 24 or something like that. The U.S. version was just a standard record sleeve, lyrics on the back, no gatefold or anything. Um, but it also contained the poster. But the poster was more standard paper stock. It didn't have that textured. The the U.K. versions were always nicer. There was always more thought put into the packaging as opposed to the Warner brothers. There's also more thought put into the masters, <laughs> which has been, uh, yeah. And by the time I uh, recognize that the, the, you know, the UK version sound better than the U S. Yeah. And, and I know like my version of it when I bought it, when I was younger was the NEMS N E M S version, which NEMS was, uh, explain to us what NEMS was. NEMS was what was originally Vertigo, um, just to, I mean, it gets kind of complicated, but I think the basic thing was that NEMS, uh, Vertigo became NEMS um, for a while. In fact, 1975 was when Sabotage came out and that first pressing wasn't Vertigo, it was NEMS. And then NEMS yielded to Vertigo somehow, some way. And subsequent pressings, even in that same year, were then on the Spaceship Vertigo label. A lot of people attribute the first pressing of Sabotage to, um, to Vertigo, but it wasn't. It was NEMS. Prior to that, uh, there was WWA, which was the first label that Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath came out on. Um, and later on, 
same same year that was also on vertigo so there must have been some sort of a financial thing going on with vertigo nems took over for a while maybe that was the parent company um and then it went reverted back to to vertigo on the record labels themselves but the, the nems imprint in the 70s was the same quality as any of the vertigo pressings the nems imprint only became diminished in the 80s because they were putting out these these uh cheaper versions of of the first six albums that you could find in stores all across america you take them home you listen to them and they sounded awful i don't know if you have any of those oh yeah because back in the 80s that was they were very common the nems versions of these records that's what you saw sort of all over the stores they they went back and reissued all these records uh you know the nems uh, version so my first version of master of reality that's that's what it is the nems version yeah so i so vertigo it went went bankrupt it it ceased to exist by the end of end of the 70s well that's not exactly true either but i think they were bought out by somebody but there was some kind of a conflict between vertigo and nems i know that vertigo continued to put things out well into the 90s but i don't think it was the same label or at least the same proprietors as in the early part of the 70s um but when when nems got the rights started putting out these these substandard quality versions of the black sabbath albums it was really unfortunate because they, they all sounded horrible um, and i'm not sure if it was oppressing or i mean the vinyl the, i remember is, yeah. is super thin vinyl i was it, listening to my master of reality today and it feels like a like a one of those things you records you get out of a magazine you know like that really thin yeah floppy sort of and nems was also responsible for they were putting out all kinds of various compilations and stuff those yeah weren't there wasn't it nems that did all those attention volume one attention volume two and the uh Euronymous bosch bosch cover greatest hits mm-hmm. thing that was nems and so they were sort of flooding the market there for for a little while with all these various black sabbath reissues and compilations and stuff so yeah and i think they also put out the live at last so i'm going to say probably you know like almost a pirate label that was releasing all this stuff in the 80s um at least it, it certainly sounded like that because it didn't sound like they were they were cold from the original masters that's for sure sound like they were they were even weaker than the U.S. There was two sets of masters. There was the U.S. and the U.K. And for whatever reason, for copyright reasons or something, they you, they couldn't import the, the 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 mastered versions of the albums to the U.S. So the so they were remastered. They were mastered differently in the U.S. So the individual tracks were sent to the U.S. studio. They were they were mastered in a different way, and. I, I, I guess it's subjective, but I think most would, would, would agree that the UK masters and UK pressings have a superior sound quality than the US. US are fine, you know. Um, there is a dropout on Paranoid. That's kind of a curious thing. That's oh, yeah, good. yeah. Uh, that doesn't exist on the UK pressing, so that's... And in Warpigs, too, I think there's there's a weird dropout. Yeah, there's, yeah. for those people out there that are, if you want to dig deeper into this type of thing, if you Google this, there's 
forums where, where, where people will tell you all the differences between the UK and the US versions. And there is a lot of strange little things, tape dropouts and weird little sonic anomalies. Yeah. So yeah, it is kind of a strange, interesting thing. But I would encourage anybody that, that loves Black Sabbath and doesn't mind putting a little bit of money behind it to, to seek out some of these these vertigo pressings and actually the, the ones that rhino put out the warner brothers the recent reissues with the uh, master of reality for instance has an extra record of bonus tracks with an unreleased track from this session called weevil woman yes it's one of the only things that i think is is a is a, a track that was was a leftover and uh you know there, there's no bonus tracks on the first black sabbath album other than uh evil woman uh, Paranoid, there's no bonus tracks, but Master of Reality actually has an unreleased track, Weevil Woman, which is on this reissue. Line. Yeah, which unfortunately, I remember when those bonus uh, two CD sets were coming out and everybody got was getting excited because they heard there was this extra unreleased song on Master of Reality. And the first warning to me was when I saw the title, Weevil Woman. <laughs> I thought, uh-oh. Yeah, here I was thinking maybe it's just some sort yeah. of different version of evil woman the the cover song that they did yeah. on the first record and it's certainly it's interesting but it's it's not anything you know it's it's no. it's something in the very early stage you're basically just jamming on a riff and ozzy singing nonsensical yeah. kind of lyrics over it and it doesn't really go anywhere and doesn't really doesn't really become anything so unfortunately the hopes that there was some great undiscovered gem that they just decided to leave off the record. Uh, not really the case. Yeah, not really. Particular scene. But if you're a Sabbath fan and you're a completist, we encourage people out there to go and yeah. seek that out and listen to it because it is, it is interesting. And those double disc things, there are some different for the, the, the double discs for the first three albums, there are some different uh, takes on some of the songs and stuff. So uh, uh, who, who put those out? Those were- Rhino. Rhino, Rhino. right, but, but, but they're imports, right? You can't get them. No, no, these are domestic. I, okay. Yeah, no, they, these, are, these are US versions. Um, they're remastered, they sound really good. Nice thick 180, I think, Graham Vine was to say. Yeah, yeah, you can get them on, that's right. Yeah, you can't get them on yeah. vinyl. And, and, uh, and, and remastered, I forget who remastered them, but he did a, a really good job. And uh, no, they're worth getting, and they're not not hardly expensive. I think they're about like you know twenty six bucks or something. And if you yeah. wanna, if you have, they're they're good to have because it, some of them do have bonus tracks. In the, the case of Master of Reality, but they're also cool because they sound good. And if you want to give your original pressings a little rest, you know you, you you can do worse buying the Rhino versions and listening to them instead. Uh, one more thing I want to add about bonus tracks. I really wish that when I came when I came down, you've heard that song, yeah. early song from like the like '69 sessions. It's a good song. It's a it, it's has a great chorus. It's a Black Sabbath song that I, I was really hoping when Rhino put out these these extended versions of these albums that when I came down or even Song for Jim would have ended up on the first Black Sabbath album, but, but they weren't. So I, I'm still holding out hope that in, in one form or another, when I came down, we'll end up on a reissue of something or maybe just some, you know, cool live 
yeah compilation with some live songs and when i came down song for jim some of that stuff that's been floating around on the internet floating around on youtube but the recording is that you know there's a master tape that somebody has and it's it's direct from the real and it sounds great i would love to hear that one of these days hopefully maybe somebody does that um, yeah for those that don't know but these were songs that before black sabbath uh released their first album they were stuff that they had recorded with their original manager funded it self-financed and there's sort of the three songs that everybody know that everybody knows exists but has never been released are when i came down uh the rebel and song for jim and you can hear a little excerpt of the rebel and uh in a vhs documentary thing that they did years ago when i came down was uh, leaked out uh, years ago but i don't think it was the complete song or something no. like that and uh song for jim is sort of like the third one that no one's ever heard yet it pieces of it have popped up and i think there's a really early bootleg where they just sort of jam on it for for a little bit or something like that so these are sort of like the three uh holy grails of unreleased undiscovered early black sabbath that fans have been uh screaming for for all these years and hopefully one day and who knows what else is out there there's all kinds of rumors of that they might have recorded other things early on when they were trying to get a record deal and stuff uh, but uh, yeah. alas we, we at, at this moment in 2020 we are still awaiting <laughs> yep. a good record store day thing oh man the absolutely with uh, the rebel and song for jim yeah you know when i came down i'm sure that would sell pretty well yes what's going on about that but it hasn't happened yet. Maybe, maybe someday. All right. All, all right. So I think that about wraps it up for our episode here on Master of Reality. Uh, please uh, drop on over to our Facebook page, Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. Uh, like us on there so you can get updates for what we, when we have new episodes being released and also we enjoy hearing people's comments leave some comments for us and let us know what your thoughts are on the topics that we discussed and maybe some future topics you would like us to touch on we have been pretty much doing an album by album uh, episodes at this point but we are going to be branching out into other black sabbath related topics in the near future so let us know some things you might like us to cover. So thank you very much for listening in, and uh, we'll see you again next time.